You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. All right, Ben, so here we are, day three of mm-hmm. IMSH conference. Uh, I tell you, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There is. There's so much, it's very hard to choose actually what to go through. I know, and I think that's sometimes hard for people to appreciate if you haven't been to a big conference like this, that there's sometimes 12 or 15 concurrent mm. streams, and it does make it pretty hard. And uh, I try and go to some things I'm interested in and some things that are really new to me. Mm. That's a good mix. So the day kicked off with the opening plenary for the day by a fellow called Joel Selenikio, who is a doctor but definitely a futurist as well in the field of technology. And he spoke to us about two key things. One was the idea about disruptive innovation and how that applies to both healthcare itself as well as healthcare professionals and how that was particularly informed by machine learning and artificial intelligence. So to flesh that out a little bit more, um, for those who may not be familiar with disruptive innovation, this is an idea that Clay Christensen wrote about uh, as long ago as the 1990s, which says in a lot of industries, smaller, cheaper products get brought out that compete with the large kind of boutique Rolls-Royce products and end up doing very well. Uh, and the way that this applies to us in healthcare is that maybe the one-minute clinics are a substitute for our big, inefficient hospitals. And uh, the way that we might think about it in healthcare workforce is that instead of having very expensive doctors doing simple tasks, instead we find other providers who can do that more cheaply, more simply, that might still meet the patient needs very well. Now, obviously, you give this kind of a talk to this kind of audience, and they find it pretty uh, confronting and Mm -hmm. provocative. Mm -hmm. Ben, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I think I suspect there's probably some cultural variance in the response to that as well, because I think um, in Australia, when we have a public health system, I mean, essentially, he was confronting us with the possibility of our careers becoming significantly automated and us being obsolete. And I think that's a very confronting concept, but I think when you're in a public system like Australia, a response to sort of being able to free up some of your resources is slightly less threatening than it might be uh, to a more financial industry like it is in the US. And I don't say that with judgment, but I think there are different kind of frames and perspectives on that problem. Different drivers for Mm. how our systems work. Uh, The other sort of side to it that I guess is an addition from where Clay Christensen left this 20 years ago is that uh, it seems that big data and artificial intelligence, by this he means sort of machine learning, where tasks that humans used to do can now be automated through the use of algorithms, allows things that we might have done, like, for instance, reading an ECG or trying to diagnose a melanoma on an arm, actually much better done by machines. And so, again, this kind of looks like a job threat if you're a radiologist because the machine can now read the x-rays better than uh, we can. Uh, And I think my takeaway from that was it wasn't a threat. It's just that doctors who use AI will replace those that don't. Not that doctors will all be replaced by robots, but um, it's certainly got a response from the audience. Yeah, yeah, people were pretty fired up. They waited, what, 20, 30 minutes to ask their questions. So it was clearly... um an effective talk with regard to engaging your audience. Yeah. And I suppose the thing that I was left thinking about is what is the role of simulation in this agenda? And uh, for me, it was really thinking, well, in fact, simulation can be a tool for workforce development and refinement like this. And I think simulation is one of the ways we can train providers potentially more efficiently and arguably cheaper. And in fact, there was a great question from Ron Harden on this about what should this kind of trend hold for, uh, he said medical schools, but indeed all health professional schools. What does that mean for how 
how our training should look. So I got to interview Ron, and here's what he had to say. All right, well, Simulcast listeners, this is pretty much the highlight of Victoria Brazel's life, to be sitting down with Ron Harden <laughs> at, uh, at the conference here. Uh, as we mentioned in our podcast on day one, uh, Ron received a Simulation Pioneer Award, and well-deserved, and we spoke about that. But I'm here today because I want to talk to him about our last keynote, which focused on the concepts of disruptive innovation, uh, artificial intelligence, the changes that that might mean for healthcare, but more specifically, the changes that it might mean for training healthcare professionals. Now, Ron, you've been thinking about this for more than a few years, but putting together what you heard today, and I guess your own perspectives, uh, what do you think this does mean for the future of training? I think there's significant changes, and I think there was an analogy when we were hearing this morning that plenary about the changes in the healthcare delivery from the use the analogy of the steel mills, the large integrated steel mill that did everything to the smallest steel mill and then on to the consumer. Uh, and in healthcare delivery, his analogy was the same from the very large hospital to the small hospital, the community, to the consumer. And I think there's an analogy in, in education and whether the, the large teaching hospital that does everything uh, and where students spend their whole career uh, is sustainable and I think it probably isn't I think we will move to the small units and this notion of unbundling the curriculum where no longer can we afford for one hospital or one teaching centre to cover all the experiences we need to share out uh, just like the car manufacturers don't use all their own goods to make their cars I think there's no sort of unbundling the curriculum we need to do the same there uh, so I think that was one dimension of this sharing out I think the other dimension is that giving students more empowerment for their own, own learning and I think one of the differences we're seeing now is the students seeing not just as um, a consumer or a client but as really a partner in the, in the learning process and indeed in the Aspire to Excellence initiative one of the areas there is student engagement so we're seeing this much more students getting engaged in their own learning and their own curriculum and I think it's not too far away where we might see that students actually planning their own curriculum, saying, I'll go to learn this in this school and I'll go to this clinical skill simulation centre that specialises and I'll spend a few time in that centre and acquire some of the skills in that centre and go somewhere else for another skills. Uh, so, And I think students will construct with different modules and maybe it, it, what will be required of the schools is moving from the sole delivery to maybe just accrediting the, their training and there'll be a changing role in that respect. So, so I think that these are some of the differences. Yes, and I think this comes with a few trends that we've seen over many years uh, with technology more broadly, this democratisation of people being able to choose, but also, I guess, from education, this idea that we're very clear on the endpoints, but in fact we need to be increasingly flexible on process. That's the whole premise of things like yeah, competency-based yeah, yeah. learning. Uh, and I think what you say is interesting about where we get these experiences because one of the analogies, one of the quotes uh, was really saying simulation was invented because now patients aren't in hospitals for weeks. Well, why were the students in hospitals for the weeks? I mean, there are other alternatives yeah, sure. than if you want to be where the people are, maybe you just no, don't need to be in the hospitals. So if you were going to make a little bit of a prediction, uh, if you're a medical school uh, academic or indeed in any health professional school, uh, what do you think are some of the things that people should be doing now to prepare for this world of 
um, healthcare professionals who need to have just-in-time skills and for whom the traditional models won't last. I mean, I think the equation I like is that with the move to competency-based education, and I think this is where it's no longer a fad or a vision. I think this is with us, moved outcome or competency-based education. And I think the sort of equation, competency-based education equals mastery learning plus adaptive learning is an interesting equation. And I think this will be the move to much more mastery and students will have a much more explicit, much more transparent what's expected of them. And this will apply in the simulation uh, laboratory or wherever. Uh, how is that contributing to their, their mastery and which of the learning outcomes is it contributing to? And secondly, uh, the adaptive nature that they'll choose the learning experiences or even as simple as the time in the simulation. People talk about this will be very difficult to move to a time-dependent model. Well, in some ways, if you take the whole course, it may be, but otherwise it not. I mean, we usually uh, timetable, uh, you have two hours in the simulation laboratory learning with Harvey or whatever simulator you're using. Uh, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, some people we know would acquire these skills in half an hour. So even within the existing timetables, uh, one should schedule time uh, not as a fixed feature and the standards variable, but rather the standards as fixed. And then you spend as long in the simulation laboratory as, as you require to develop these standards. Mm. Um, and that you, this varies according to your individual needs. So I think this notion of linking this motion of adaptive learning uh, where uh, it, 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 I'm sure one of the things of the future to much more clumsy base learning and master learning uh, and that is where the, the future will lie. Yes and I think we have seen some of that arise from the simulation community with Bill McGahey's work on mastery learning yep. and deliberate practice with even the rapid cycle deliberate practice work yep. that Betsy yep. Hunt and colleagues uh, which brings me to the last thing I guess I want to ask you which was to broaden it out uh, obviously you've been involved with Amy and uh, health professional education for many years. Sim is a subset section of that or also an overlapping set. Um, what have been your take-homes from the conference here about what you think is happening in SIM? Sure. I mean, just back to Bill McGahey, I mean, just coming back to reinforcing the previous point, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, if my memory is correct, I think he showed the variation was a factor of four in the time people required huge. to learn some of the things. So it's a huge difference we're talking about. So it is, if you're yeah. in simulation centre, some people would do it in half an hour, some people need two hours. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a huge, huge mm. issue. Um, where, where's uh, education going and from this conference? Um, I, I think it's... I think it's part of the bigger picture. My worry is that simulation is seen as uh, just as its own niche and we've lost track of, of the, with, with other elements in education. I think that's, we need to make sure it's there uh, as a tool um, and will we'll meet, a, meet a purpose. Mm. Um, I think it was an interesting study many years ago in, um, it was Wayne Hodgins mm. who looked at refrigerators and ice makers and what event when ice makers, uh, what happened to them when refrigerators were invented? And they all went out of business because none of them went into the refrigeration business because they were so interested in their activities delivering ice that yep. they lost out. But what were the function? The function was to help people uh, to cool things. Yep. Uh, so they, lost, they were so busy with the activity, they lost the function. And the challenge with education, that's what we tend to do in education. We're so busy with our activities, we sort of function. And I think that's my slightly uh, concern. I mean, I think there's huge things being done, and simulation is the way of the future. But I think we 
get too caught up in the activities and look what is the function. In other words, how does that relate to their overall learning outcomes and the, and the framework of, of learning outcomes? And I think it's if we look at the biggest trend I see in medical education overall is the, the notion to an authentic curriculum. You know, people wanting to ask, is this curriculum from day one of medical school going to train someone to be a good doctor who will serve the needs of the population? Um, so if that's the biggest trend and the biggest aim, then simulation offers a key role to play in it. But it should look at how it plays that role along with the bigger, with the, with the bigger curriculum, how it fits into the outcome-driven model and the notion of personalization, adaptive learning, master learning. I mean, it can le- could be leading the field. I think we see some good examples of that here. It just needs, I think, all to put together. How is this going to develop not just simulation, but the huge contribution it's making to medical education generally and other people's need to know this. I was contributing this thinking. I agree. I think it's a bit of a risk having a community of practice that's defined by a modality yep. rather than by a mission. Sure. Um, I, I think obviously there's many in the community who've got plenty of great mission, that's but right. I think uh, it's, it's, a, it's a risk, as you say, yep. a worry. But I think, as you say, some brilliant stuff that you've seen here. Yep. 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 Well, thank you very much, Ron. My pleasure, Victoria. And I, I'm a great admirer of what you're doing as well. <laughs> okay, thank you. You're listening to Simulcast. I was also lucky enough to talk to one of the conference conveners, Yua Dong, who works at the Mayo Clinic, and I was interested both in how he thought the conference was going, as well as what he had to say about the keynote by Joel Selenikyo. I'm here with Yua Dong, who is one of the conference co-conveners, as well as a physician who works at the Mayo Clinic, and who I know because we've done some work together on systems integration. So Yua, first of all, just tell us a little bit about what you do in SIM. Hi, um, Victoria. Nice to see you again. So thank you for joining us. Um, I'm Yue Dong. I'm trained as an uh, anesthesiologist from China. So I've been Mayo for 20, almost 20 years. Uh, I'm working at the Department of Anesthesia of Critical Care. So uh, my primary work at Mayo is doing research and education. So particularly my interest really uh, regarding SIMS, you know, in addition to do some trainings for residents, fellows, uh, we also do, my personal interest really about the using company modeling to design the workflow to improving process for healthcare, particularly in SU practice. So this is really my primary focus. And also we did some work uh, uh, with global um, deployment, low-cost simulation in 35 countries, ICUs about checklist-based interventions. So yeah, just results just been published in critical care medicine. Yeah, so, well, yeah. congratulations. And I think not everyone in the simulation community sort of has the kind of technical background that you've got for this computer modeling, but it's clearly very powerful in improving the efficiency of our systems. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I'm not an expert per se for the computer modeling per se, but I think uh, um, I've just learned the last couple of years, I think there's a lot of engineers who's working really working with you to, to improving healthcare delivery, you know, but I think uh, the key things, you know, we as clinicians, physician nurses, really to open our arm to learn things, uh, so many things we don't know we don't know, so that's really the key. Yeah, and look, to be honest, I think simulation has been pretty good at that in general about reaching out to other fields like engineering, but yeah. we've got to maintain the rage, as it were, and not get too insular as yeah, we grow yeah, as a profession. Exactly. Uh, all right, so how about your role here as the co-convener? Congratulations again. It's certainly a magnificent conference. Uh, tell us, what have been the highlights for you or take home so far? Oh, yeah, I think uh, we got a lot of uh, people from around the world. I think this is a record year for us. You know, all of us are excited. Thank you for all of you to make this conference a uh, record year. Uh, I think uh, we have tried something new this year. As we said, you know, we did the President Ball, we did the... Uh, the first uh, uh, morning run, and also I think all the exciting things we uh, 
have a first live streaming and keynote uh, plenary. I think uh, we as an international society really try to have global reach in order to people to more engage. You know, I think this give another capability to reach more uh, people around the world to helping improving care. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. All right, and the last thing I just wanted to ask, we've just been in the keynote with uh, Joel Salonicchio, and he went with these themes around disruptive innovation in healthcare and indeed in the health workforce, looking at the role of big data, artificial intelligence, and how that could potentially really transform the way that healthcare is delivered, but also the people who deliver it. I think a lot of people in the audience felt quite threatened by it, uh, and it was certainly put out there as a bit provocative, and um, I thought it was interesting and drew heavily on the Clay Christensen disruptive innovation sure. models. Uh, but, yeah, tell us, what did you think about both the talk and the audience reaction? Yeah, I think uh, the talk is fantastic. As you know, this is we Pacific bring him in to try to generate a lot of discussion on purpose, by design. So I think uh, there's a lot of discussions. It's really great discussion for the QA session. I think uh, even after the session, you can see a lot of people still gathering, asking them questions. I think the more importantly, I think... Um, uh, for a lot of uh, uh, those innovators, you know, a lot of people doubt your thoughts, you know, I think, is it right? Is it true? Is this what we do? Uh, but I think uh, what I think in, you know, my personal experience, you know, because you have no time to fighting out. You just put all your efforts to build something new. Time will tell. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think what we know for sure is that we definitely don't know what the future will have. Yeah, so. uh, but there's definitely some trends that we're watching. One thing I think that it really made me think about was the role of simulation in being part of training people more efficiently mm-hmm. and with disruptive methods. And in a way, simulation itself does that. But I think that's still an underutilized potential for our modalities. And that is to say we can train people uh, just as well, faster, more efficiently and for lower cost than the traditional models. Definitely. Of course, this is huge uh, potential, you know, especially with new technology merging, the low cost or VR, AR, those things emerging. I think this is coming. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Yua. Thank you, Victoria. You're listening to Simulcast. And just to channel a little bit of the audience response, I also thought I might just pick a uh, attendee who was also waiting to ask a question of the uh, keynote speaker, and I asked her what she thought. All right, so I'm here in the plenary hall with Valerie McKenna from the University of Central Florida. How are you, Valerie? I'm great. How are you? Good. Now, what do you do in simulation? Well, uh, currently I'm a PhD student, um, and I'm focusing on simulation for my research. Um, I've been a simulation facilitator when I worked as an instructor previously. Excellent. Well, Valerie made the mistake of coming up and being a fan of Simulcast, so I was interested in her take on the keynote we just had. So this was Joel Selenicchio, and he's a doctor, but also a bit of a futurist, and sort of told us a fair bit about disruptive innovation and artificial intelligence, and how that was going to impact on healthcare practice, but I think also healthcare training. So, uh, yeah, what did you think about his uh, talk? Right. So um, being a nurse, um, I, I sort of felt like I didn't feel as threatened about my future as maybe some of the physicians in the audience, mm-hmm. um, simply because I, I don't necessarily see the advances um, eliminating um, nursing care. Mm-hmm. But even if it does sort of change what we do, I think, um, and I was elbowing my colleague next to me and saying, you know, like when... Uh, when patients can start to diagnose themselves and treat themselves with these like clever apps, you know, what, what's in it for us or what, what could we do? And she said, well, 
they're not going to understand what they're reading. Yeah. We're going to become the translators of the information. So we might actually be still that liaison between the information that they're getting and interpreting it properly. Mm -hmm. So I am inclined to agree with you because I think although many in the room found his talk maybe confronting, I think we will have different roles, but they won't be no roles. And I think, to his credit, he was making that point. Doctors aren't going to be replaced by AI. It's doctors that use AI will replace doctors that don't. Right. And as you say, I think that goes for all professions. The other thing that he talked about was probably the idea of disruptive innovation in the workforce and the idea that this will enable uh, those to, at each level, to sort of practice maybe more at the top of their licence rather than doing some of the things that can now be automated, which I think is an opportunity. Absolutely. Right, because it can free us up for the things that that are the mundane tasks and so that we can serve more people just in in more particular ways. Yeah, so if you're not doing data entry, you can actually be the human caring for the patient that you probably find more fulfilling anyway. Right, right. And we're always arguing, saying that we don't have enough time to be with the patient, that we're busy doing these mundane tasks. So I agree with you, yeah. All right, well, you have a great rest of IMSH, Valerie. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you, you too. You're listening to Simulcast. So, Ben, you were out and about too. You uh, saw some interesting sessions. Uh, you were interested in the tag team simulation. I did, yeah. So I caught up with a friend called uh, Susie Cardong Edgren. And uh, I guess in Simulcast, in previous kind of episodes, we've talked about the acceptance of simulation as a teaching tool and then this kind of overwhelming need to deliver it to a huge amount of students and that sometimes the sort of needs outstrip resources. So Susie discussed um, a potential solution to that. Okay, so I'm here with a dear friend of mine, Susie Cardong Edgren, and uh, we both met at the CMS Advanced course recently and were in the same work group where we were developing a uh, particular scenario. How are you going, Susie? Can you tell people who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Sure. I'm Susie Cardong-Edgren, the Director of Simulation at Robert Morris University, which is outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's great. And so we, at the CMS Advanced Workshop, we were actually working on a particular vision that you had for a tag team simulation. And I'm wondering if you can unpack uh, what that is, because you're doing, you've done a workshop on it this conference. Yes. So tag team is not an original idea. We knew about it from our friend, Dr. Petraea Anderson from the University of the Sunshine Coast. But there's a whole team of nurses that were funded by the government there to come up with this way to provide simulation uh, in a scalable way for the very large classes they have of nurses in Australia. So uh, a friend and I went down, attended one of their uh, I guess, un- opening the door to this whole idea uh, workshop. We participated in it. We thought it was wonderful. And uh, as I came back to my own school, we uh, were blessed with a contract to train corporate executives. So we were using typical simulation, uh, standard problems that occur in industry. Uh, and they loved it so much, they wanted to come back for another day. Well, we were... Uh, 
thunderstruck. And then we were like, well, how are we going to keep him entertained for another whole day? And we said, why don't we adapt the concept of tag team to corporate executives and get everybody involved instead of a one-on-one or three-on-one experience and simulation into briefing? We can do the whole group of 10 or 12 at the same time, let people tag themselves in and out of situations. And what we found is we adapted this tag team to this other group. Um, we had one group that were the participants that could tag themselves in and out. The other group were the antagonists who could write little um, spicy bits on three by five cards to hand in to keep the scenario moving forward and get rougher or easier as the case may be. Of course, it never got easier. It always got harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people would say, I've actually had this discussion. I always wanted a chance to redo it to see if I could come to a different conclusion or if there was a way to resolve the situation in a way that I might not have thought of the first time. So it was wildly successful for corporate executives. I know that uh, it's very successful in Australia for tag team for large groups of nurses. So what we've basically done is adapt this great concept into other areas. We've now been asked to use tag team. If I say Kobayashi Maru, those of you who love Star Trek know what that is. And I'm not going to tell you if you don't know, you have to go look it up. Um, somebody who works with millennials who are in mid-level executive positions who finally get told no and then want to quit and walk away. Uh, they want to come to us for simulation. Uh, they heard about our tag team and said, we'd love to do that, but we want Kobayashi Maru scenarios. And we said, no, we don't want that. We want them to have a way out. Uh, but with tag team, we'll be able to provide a collective learning experience for everybody as opposed to a one-on-one kind of situation. So we think that tag team's awesome, and we're going to be giving it a try in multiple venues that have nothing to do with healthcare. So if I can just paraphrase that, so it's a little bit of gamification of simulation in some ways, I guess, yes. but um, so you will have a some kind of scenario developed, but there will be a group of people participating sort of asynchronously, and they can jump in and out of the scenario depending on the structure of how you've done it's, it. It's all synchronous. Yep. Um, half the room is, is the participants, and you can I can tag them in or out as the uh, director, or they can tag them – themselves in and out. And the idea behind that is if people suddenly have a brilliant, I wonder what would happen if they can go down, tag themselves in. Also, if you are in the scenario and you think, okay, I've used everything I've got. I don't know what to do now. You can ask, you can tag yourself out. So it's a very dynamic process. So people are kind of dynamically shifting between being a participant and being an observer, but within the same shared space the whole time. And what interests me about that is it sounds like it was an innovation that was designed by need, as in you had a volume of nursing students that you needed to expose to simulation that was that exceeded the kind of capacity of delivery. And so you've had this innovation. And I'm curious about the fact that it's been so warmly embraced. Have there been unexpected educational bonuses? I think what we did not necessarily anticipate is because we run the scenario the first time through, we have like a little pause. We call it the popcorn time as we adopted from Australia. Um, There's a little tiny debrief and then we run the same scenario again. Um, People are more engaged in debriefing. It's not as formulaic as it tends to be sometimes for us in nursing. So uh, there's more of a willingness on both sides to participate in the debriefing 
at a level that we might not have anticipated before. So it's it's very interesting. I'd have to say when we did it, uh, the time that I trialed it for the first time, uh, one thing that I really enjoyed is that there was more of a sharing of ideas yes. during the sim rather than necessarily just in the debrief. Yes. I think everybody is more attuned to what's going on and more engaged all the way around. Brilliant. Um, so this sounds like this is a really important technique to you that you're quite passionate about. I think it is something that should be widely tried out because it solves for us um, as the largest end users of simulation of any health professions group, nursing, we all have scalability issues and try that we always are talking about how do we get people through sim? How do we provide it for everybody? This is a way to do it. So I highly recommend it. And you can uh, find out more about it on the uh, Curtin University website. So it's C. Is it cwu.edu? If you, if you on Google type in a tag team for patient safety, the website will pop up and all of the scenarios, I think they have eight now are all there with um, antagonist cards with cue cards for audience members also to be thinking about major things. Again, it was built for patient safety, but we're using it not for patient safety. We're using it for other things, but the, you can get the whole idea behind the concept and download the scenarios for free. The Australian government's paid for it. Everybody is welcome to use it. It's how we roll in Australia. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Well, I guess that's it for day three, Ben. Uh, one more day of the conference, a half day, and uh, we'll bring you the final highlights in our next episode. Sounds good. You're listening to Simulcast. 